Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening. Okay, uh, so uh, a couple weeks ago, we took a break on a series that we were doing where we were going through the book of Acts. So after Easter, we jumped into the book of Acts because um, that is what happens right after the resurrection, is we get into the launch of the church. And so we've gone through the first four chapters, and in those first four chapters, we've seen some pretty incredible things. Um, And I kind of summarize it like this, is the first thing that the disciples talked about as they were launching the church is that we are to believe. We're supposed to believe in Jesus and in his claims and in his resurrection and in his offer of salvation. And then we find out that we are supposed to be baptized. And so you go public with that belief. um, And that way that you do that is you get baptized in front of the church and then you belong. You belong to his family, to his church family. And then we boldly proclaim the gospel message. Now we go out and we tell other people about him. And so the whole idea behind the church is when Jesus came and he brought this message of salvation to the world. He he went and he did these miracles and eventually dies and he resurrects. And then he says to the disciples and all the people who will follow him is it's your turn now is you're in charge of making this message go to all ends of the earth. Like you are my people, you're my family. You're going to act as my body on earth. And so for the last 2000 years, that's what people have been doing. As we jump into the, uh, into Acts chapter five, we hit, and of course it's got to be another B, we hit some barriers Now, they've had barriers all along, but there's two significant barriers that they hit in this chapter. And I'm not going to lie, this chapter is wild. Like, if you don't know anything about the Bible, or even if you do, but you haven't read this, you're going to be like, that is, (laughs) that's crazy. And not only is the story crazy, but the application for our lives is going to be rough. I'm just telling you up front, you're going to walk away and you might be mad, okay? And you're going to write an email and I say to you, prayer mail is better because he'll answer and I won't, all right? And so, no, but for real, um, it, it, it might get a little rough, all right? So just, if you want a happy, clappy message watch last week's message because that's not going to be this week. All right, here we go. So here's kind of what's taking place is the church is building. It's growing. People are, um, are not only excited, but there's just this incredible generosity that has broken out in the church. And so people are selling off property and sharing all of their things and taking care of those who are in need. And this one guy named Barnabas, who's a leader, he steps up and he sells his property. And then he gives the entire proceeds to the church. And so people are seeing this, and they're celebrating, they're amped, and here's what it says in Acts 5.1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So they see what's taking place, and they're like, you know what? We want to get in on this. His generosity is breaking out, and we want to be a part of that. We want to help uh, support the church. And so they sell off a piece of property as well and bring the money to the church. Here's the problem. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And so he comes and he acts as if I'm doing what Barnabas did. I'm selling off this property and I'm bringing it all to the church. Look at how generous I am. I'm like the ultimate Christian, except he's actually keeping back some of the proceeds for him and his wife. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? 
So Peter, boom, he knows what's going on. He calls him to the carpet and he says, how could you be, and I thought this phrase was interesting, filled with Satan or Satan's filled your heart. Because here's what it points at. The reality is that everybody is filled with something. Peter says, you're filled with, with Satan and his, his schemes. Some of us were filled with pride or we're filled with insecurities. We've been filled with alcohol. Some of you are full of, okay, we'll just keep going. But you know what you're full of. If you don't, ask your spouse. They'll tell you. <laughs> Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? So the money was yours. You got to decide what you wanted to do with it. And yet you decided that not only were you going to lie to us, your church family, but you were going to lie to God. And I don't know if you know this, but God can see what you're doing. You can't hide from God. It says you, uh, when Ananias heard this, this is like my favorite part of the story. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. <laughs> okay. You didn't see that coming. Neither did Ananias. I bet you Peter was just like watching this. He's like, you shouldn't have done that. And he dies. So he's like, um, did I just do that? Was that me? That's what's up. Don't mess with me, right? And so these guys who are standing there, they come in and they wrap up his body and they carry him out and they bury him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Now, I don't know where her friends were during this three hours, but they probably would have heard. They could have given her a heads up like, hey, whatever you do, don't lie to Peter. All right? I'm just going to give you a heads up. Don't lie to Peter. Yes, she said, that is the price wrong answer. See, what happened to your husband was he said the same thing a few hours ago, and the guys who carried out his dead body are here to carry out yours as well. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. <laughs> then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I bet it did. Can you imagine? You will not believe what happened at service this weekend. Oh, was it good? Like, was it, you would talk about convicting. You know what happened? People were not just slain in the spirit, they were dying in the spirit. Some of you guys have no idea what that term means. That's okay. Um, I can just imagine like the next weekend service for them and they're passing around the bucket and people are just shaking like, okay, I'm going to drop my check in. They're like, put an extra zero, put an extra zero on it this week. You know, like we do so. So I was, I was studying this all week and um, it's a wild story. And so I, I decided to run it by my kids for their bedtime story on Friday night. <laughs> Never too early to instill the fear of the Lord in them. So I read through it and um, we're going through it, and I'm like, and they died. And, and so then I usually give them like a quiz afterward to see if they're paying attention or not. And so I said, okay, so why did God strike them down? Like, well, they died because they lied. I'm like, bingo, that's right. And why don't we lie in this house? We don't want to get struck by lightning, okay? That's what we do. And I will tell you, no one slept that Friday night, but... So we see these barriers, and um, some of the first major barriers that the church encounters is actually from the inside of the church. And God steps in, and he not only disciplines, but he does it harshly and publicly so that everybody sees. 
And if you're a parent, maybe you've had one of these moments before where um, I have young kids and my youngest is three. And so most of the time, and discipline happens on a pretty regular basis. It's like, okay, don't hit them. Don't throw that. Eat your food. Don't, you know. And so it's just a pretty consistent discipline. But I've had a few moments. And with him, I think I've only had one in which I had to make sure that he understood what he did was not only wrong, but it was dangerous. And so a couple weeks ago, it's pretty uh, typical. My son wasn't listening to me. He's running around. I'm telling him, come on, let's go. We're in the front yard playing. And, and not only does he run away from me and not listen, but he runs directly into the middle of the street. And uh, we, you know, where the cars were parked and stuff, no one would have been able to see that he was jumping out in the street. And so if a car was coming, he, he probably would have been hit. And so I grabbed him and I looked him in the eye and I used a tone and a sternness that he has never heard before. Because I wanted him to remember. In fact, I wanted him to be afraid because what he was doing was dangerous. And so, yes, he was upset and we had to talk through it. And, but I'm hoping that that's stuck in his mind where he goes, you know what? You know, dad disciplines me, but that's one area that I don't want to go to because there's something significant about that. And I think that's what's happening here is God is getting everybody's attention and he's He's making sure that they remember what happened here is not just wrong, but it's serious. So what happened here? Well, I think it's no coincidence that the first major issue that the church encounters is money. Because the two major things that we have the most difficulty submitting to God are money and sex. Those are the things that we want to have control over. And so it's no coincidence that money is one of the major issues that they encounter. But it's not about the money. Remember, they could have decided what they wanted to do with the money. It's about something deeper here. The core issue of Ananias and Sapphira is hypocrisy. Is they said, we are in, we're a part of the church, we are fully, like, we're committed, we're going to do this. They're probably volunteering and they're giving and they're, but what they said was that they were in. But what their actions said was, we're really about ourselves. Uh, yeah, I say Jesus over everything, but it's really about my desires and my needs over everything. And whether you're a Christian or not here today, I think we all can agree that nobody likes a hypocrite. Nobody wants to, to hang out with hypocrites. And there's, there's consequences if you're a hypocrite. You know, there's consequences relationally. Is it's really hard to have relationships with people who are hypocritical because you can't really trust them. Emotionally, it's difficult to be a hypocrite because you're living this double life, always in fear of is somebody going to find out who I really am and what I'm really up to. But if you look at this story, you might think, but death? that seems a little bit harsh. I mean, does that punishment fit the crime? Is, does God just strike down people for hypocrisy all the time? Well, no, I don't think so. But we need to step back a little bit and find out what's, what's going on here. Is Ananias and Sapphira, they were believers. They were part of the church. They were um, claiming to be Christians. And so part of being a Christian, one of our main responsibilities as Christians is we are Jesus representative to the rest of the world. And so as Jesus representatives, and by the way, um, this wasn't just true then, uh, companies will spend millions of dollars on brand ambassadors and celebrity endorsements and uh, social media influencers to promote their product, because here's what they know. It was true now, and it was, it's true, uh, true then and true, true now, is that one person who represents a company can change the entire image of the company, either good or bad. And so as they were representing Jesus, what were they telling the rest of the world about Jesus? They were telling him, telling him that he's a liar, a hypocrite, selfish, and he cannot be trusted. And the consequences of rep representing Jesus like that in the world can be eternal. Because people may end up rejecting Jesus, not based on who Jesus is and what he said, but based upon 
who Jesus' people say that he is. We've seen this a million times. I've been a pastor for a long time, and you may even have a story like this in your life or your family is somebody who walked away from Jesus or just won't even entertain the idea of faith because not of what Jesus said, but because of what Jesus' people said. And so people walk away or won't come to faith simply based on Jesus' representatives. So God gets everybody's attention. If you're going to represent me in the world, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, you better step up and you better do it well because there is a lot that is hanging in the balance. And it's not just true on a personal level. This is true uh, culturally as well. Is When the church is seen as a bunch of hypocrites from the culture's eyes, we lose the ability not only to speak to individuals, but to be able to speak on some really important cultural issues because we've lost our moral authority. And so uh, I talk to uh, people all the time, especially parents, and as they are looking at kind of the, the, the trends that are taking place in culture and, and some of the challenges that we're facing, they're afraid, which I understand and I get, and they want to speak into those issues. They want their voice to be heard. But the problem is, is that as culture looks at Christians, they think, you know what, I might take you more serious if you had actually practiced what you preach. Let me give you an example is we have pretty much lost the war on the sexual revolution and biblical marriage. And I, I kind of suspect that one of the reasons why we have lost that battle is when we try to speak into culture and say, hey, here's what we believe sex should look like. Here's what we believe marriage should look like. They look back at us and go, you want to talk about biblical marriage? You want to talk about sexuality? Wait, what happened with all that premarital sex and divorce and pornography that was taking place in the church? I didn't hear you saying anything about that when it was in your house. Ooh. And so maybe they look at us and they go, you know, you want to come and you want to speak to us, but maybe you should clean up your house first. Maybe you should get your house in order. And Jesus warned us about this. In Matthew 7, he said, make sure to take the plank out of your eye before you address or before you try to take the speck of dust out of your brother's eye. He's not saying don't speak up about really important cultural issues. In fact, we're supposed to. We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to preserve the world. But Jesus also said that if you lose your saltiness, you won't be able to preserve anymore. And so maybe they look at us and they go, you know, I'm going to start listening when you start practicing. I'm not saying that we have to have it all together. We have to um, keep silent on any kind of issues until we kind of uh, maintain some kind of standard of perfection in our life. That is not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that we can't be hypocrites. So a hypocrite is somebody who pr pretends to be one thing, but is actually another, who, who, or who doesn't practice what they actually preach. And so as Christians, what is it that we preach? Well, we preach that... That there's repentance and salvation and forgiveness and grace through Christ. And so we don't pretend to be perfect. In fact, that is the reason why we're Christians is because Jesus is perfect and we're not perfect. And so when we do inevitably mess up and we will, and we probably will often, we don't just shove it under the rug and say, oh, nobody see that. I got to maintain my perfection here. We go, no, no, no. That's why I need Jesus. And so I'm going to confess my sins. I'm going to repent of them. I'm going to ask God and whoever else I have hurt for forgiveness. And then the church is going to embrace me with this grace that I don't deserve because it's coming from Christ. Now, if they saw that image of us, not a bunch of people who are pretending to be perfect, but a bunch of people who know that they're broken and admit it and repent and turn their life around when they do mess up, I think they might take us a little bit more seriously when we start to speak into their lives and into the cultural issues. It's very, very quiet here today. 
I was afraid it was going to be quiet today. Did you know it was going to be quiet today? It, I thought it might be the rain, but then I was like, I think it's, all right, here we go. Well, just wait. <laughs> I'm still going. I got another level here. So a side note. Um, and by the way, I think that this is why, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, you might be in your head going, that's why I'm not a Christian, because I know Christians, and I don't want to be like them. And I would say, you're right. We mess up. And it's not the fact that we mess up, it's the fact that we don't admit it. Now, if you're a, a person here who says that, hey, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, but you like explicitly reject an aspect of Christianity. Like, you're like, I know what the Bible says. I know I'm not supposed to be living like this, but you know what? I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Can you just do us a favor? Stop calling yourselves a Christian. Oh! <laughs> I, uh, I have a friend who um, comes from a, a, what you consider a nominally Christian family. They called themselves Christians, but they didn't actually believe or act like it. Um, it was kind of more of a tradition in their family, kind of a heritage thing. And so um, when he became a teenager, he actually became a real Christian. And he started following Jesus. And we went home and he said, hey, guys, we've called ourselves Christians all this time. But you know what? Like, here's what it really means to follow Christ. And here's what it looks like. And here's what he has on offer. And he kind of lays out the gospel. And he does this for a while. And eventually they just go, you know, we're not interested. He said, okay, if you're not going to live like that, can you at least stop claiming that you're Christians? Because you're making it really hard for the rest of us who have no problem screwing this up on our own. We don't need your help screwing this up. And, I, and so I, my message is not, okay, don't come back, don't be, no, no, no. My message is this, is just, just actually do what you're saying you're going to do. That's it. Is if you say you're a Christian, my hope is that you just start acting like one. Not because your salvation depends on you being perfect. No, no, no. Just so that we can, in the world, be salt once again. When they look at us, they go, I may not believe what they believe, but at least they're living what they're claiming. My hope is that uh, if you're here today and you're trying to discover faith, um, that you would, uh, you, that you, there would be something attractive about this to you. Because one of the phrases that we've started using in our family is we want to live differently. And that's what Christians do is we live differently. And so if you're not a Christian, you're just trying to discover this whole faith thing, you're not even sure, I am so pumped that you are here and we want to try to reflect to you what it looks like to be a Christ follower the best we can. We're going to screw it up and we admit that. But we just hope that you would find this place a great place for you to explore faith. Okay, let's continue on because I am going to run out of time. All right, uh, let's go back to the story. Acts 5, it shifts away from Ananias and Sapphira because, no, they're dead. And so their story kind of ends there. The apostles continue to do miracles and healing people and meeting together in the temple. And more and more people begin joining the church. And as people and crowds are starting to, to listen to this message of the apostles, the religious leaders are jealous. And so they go and they grab the apostles and they throw them in jail. And as they're sitting in jail, um, God shows up. And by the way, uh, as a side note, they kind of had two main uh, uh, kind of fronts of opposition, the early church. They had the Jewish leaders and they had the, uh, the Roman Empire. And as I think about the barriers that we encounter today, I think ours are a little bit more subtle because those are pretty explicit. They're going to throw you in jail. They're going to kill you. Ours are, are a little bit more ideological. Is when I was studying um, to become a, a pastor, one of the areas that I studied was apologetics. And this was, you know, a decade ago. And 
Um, in apologetics, we study things like theology and philosophy and science because a lot of the pushback from the Christian worldview was coming from people who were atheists and agnostics, more uh, philosophically or scientific-minded, and so that's kind of where the arguments were. And Christians for decades now have been rising up in those areas of study and are able to um, not only combat, but I think are winning the arguments in a lot of those spaces. And so we're, we're studying and we're doing all this kind of stuff, and here's what I realized recently is I prepared for the wrong battle. Because I was preparing for this intellectual, academic battle over here, and the real battle was coming in a different direction. The real battle was about the sexual revolution, critical theory, progressive Christianity, postmodernism, political idolatry. Is this is now, I'm preparing, I'm looking over here, and over here we, hear, we have our left flank just getting attacked because this is where the arguments are coming from. This is where the questions are at. And so we have to realize that there's always going to be barriers, barriers that are coming in from the outside. So here's what happened to them. During the night, an angel comes, opens up the jail doors, and says to the apostles, Go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. So, wait a minute, hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked that you let me out of jail. Didn't enjoy this place. Thank you for opening the doors. However, um, I'm not sure that I want to go back to the very place that got me arrested, because this time, now that I've escaped, I don't think they're going to look very kindly on me. In fact, if it was jail that they did last time, what do you think the next step is going to be here? It's almost as if God is putting them in direct line of fire, that he is putting them in conflict with people. Wait a minute, I thought when we become Christians, we don't have as much conflict. It's all peace and love and unity, right? Let me ask you this. Do you think that the apostles experienced more or less conflict when they started following Jesus? I'm going to say quite a bit more since they all died as martyrs, is when they entered into a relationship with Jesus, all their enemies that they once had, or their enemies that they once had, which was God, because as we reject God, as we rebel against him, he is our adversary. This is what sin does. And as we have this enemy in God, this is a great adversary to have because he loves us and he wants to save us. The problem is, is that when we step over and we start following Jesus, and now we have God on our side, we have new enemies. And these enemies are not greater, but they're nasty. They want to steal your joy. They want to steal your, your excitement. They can't take away your faith, but they're going to really try to ruin different aspects of your life. And so it's as if we come into this whole relationship with Christ, and we don't realize that we're entering into a battle, and there's going to be conflict. Jesus warned us. Here's what he said. Matthew 10, 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he talks about all the people whom you love and how there's probably going to be conflict because you follow Jesus and they don't. There's this popular misconception that Jesus is kind of like Mr. Rogers. Oh, he's just a friendly next door neighbor. Everybody wants to hang out. He's kind of a hippie dude, you know, and, and that's not at all the picture of Jesus in the scriptures. If you look at what he did and, and what he said, you don't get a picture of Mr. Rogers um, because nobody wanted to kill Mr. Rogers. Nobody wanted to worship him either. It's because what Jesus does is he doesn't just say, I'm here to be everybody's friend. What he does is he puts us in a corner or backs us into a corner and he goes, you're going to have to decide, are you going to, are you going to worship me or are you going to kill me? Do you love me or do you hate me? Because he can't just like me. Because I came in and I claimed things like I'm God incarnate. And that the only way to heaven is through me. And that you are so desperately wicked and broken that you can do nothing to save yourself. Only I can do that. That's a fairly offensive message. 
And then he says, as our messengers now, go out and spread that message in the world. There's two things that are going to happen if you really are spreading that message either. Um, people are going to find it the greatest news of all time, or they're going to be offended and they're probably going to dislike you. And so he says, go and spread. I'm going to make a prediction. Nominal Christianity is over. And what I mean by this is, at one point in time, maybe for the last few decades, it's been beneficial to be labeled as a Christian, even to go to church, because people saw you in the community as kind of an upstanding citizen, and, and you're part of this group, and you probably have some standards and some morality, and so it was a good thing for you to go to church. But I don't think that's true anymore, especially here on the West Coast, is as we become more secular, it's going to become more and more difficult for you to be publicly identified as a Christian and actually show up and do this whole faith thing. Because people are not going to respect you more because you're a Christian. They're going to think some things about you. Because they're going to think, oh, they hold these, these beliefs. I mean, they're so naive. They're so close-minded. They're just a bunch of bigots. I mean, how could they think these things? And so I think what's happening is the what I call the mushy middle. The people who were kind of, yeah, I'm a Christian, I guess. Those people are gone. They're out. They're not coming back. And I think this is a really good thing because it's going to leave two types of people. It's going to leave the people who are 100% in because it's going to cost them something or people who are really attracted to what they see in those people and they want to be a part of it. Sure, I'm not sure what they believe. And by the way, this was the result of Ananias' fire. Let me go back to verse 13. It says this, No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So some people saw what was happening in the church and went, I respect it, but I don't want anything to do with it. But it also says, More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. What? That's not a church growth strategy. You're supposed to do something that attracts people. You can have like frosted tips and stuff like that and cool music and we'll give away in and out and we'll do a... Sorry, was that, was that rude? It was rude. You have, you have gray tips now, so that's kind of exciting. You know he'll get me back later, so... All right, let's continue on. We're run, I'm running out of time and I'm getting in trouble. So they're released from jail. They head out to the courtyard and they begin preaching. Uh, the religious leaders come in the next day and they go to the cells and they look and they're not in there and they find him out there and they're preaching this message again. And so they bring him in and they warn him, you better stop preaching about this Jesus. And here was their response. We must obey God rather than human beings. If we have to choose to obey you and submit to your agenda and your ideology, we are going to choose God every single time. And by the way, this isn't a choice just they had to make. This is a choice we have to make every single day is God or my desires, God or the popular opinion, God or politics, even God or my family or my friends is who are you going to choose? When you are confronted, you are put in a place in which it's very uncomfortable and kind of scary. Who are you going to choose? Is it God or is it something else? Leaders want to put them to death at this point and and something strange happens. One of the kind of older, wiser leaders jumps in and says, you know, hold on. Before we put these guys to death, let's just, let's just see this thing play out a little bit. We've seen so many religious movements start and they all kind of die off and they become nothing. And so let's just see what happens with this. Because if God's not in the middle of it, I'm sure it's going to fade out just like the rest of them. And so it says this in verse 40, a speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. 
Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, this is so strange, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering the disgrace for the name. So they get flogged, they're released, and their response is not, I'm going to go and hide, I need to go and lick my wounds, I need to go and get out of here. No, the response is they rejoiced in their suffering. Why would they rejoice? Well, think about it. If you're a Christian and you're trying to become more like Christ, and Christ was mocked and tortured and crucified, when you are persecuted for his name, it means you're doing it right. That's kind of the goal. That's what we're aiming for, is to be used by him in such a way that we don't care about what happens to us. So at this point, if you are uh, not a Christian, or you're a Christian and you brought a friend today, and you're going, this was not the weekend to bring him here. You're like, I knew it. I've been working forever to get them here. And then this is the message that they get. Hold on. Okay, hold on. Just, just for a second. If you are in that position where you're trying to explore faith and after you hear about this, you go, I'm not, no, uh-uh. I don't want anything to do with this. This sounds crazy to me. Let me give you two reasons why you might want to rethink that. One, we believe this is true. Like, we really do believe that Jesus died and he rose from the dead, and there's good reason to believe it. Like, we've looked at the evidence. We've done years of research, some of us, and we say, you know what? This actually, this looks like it, it actually happened. And not only is, like, the evidential part of it, but there's the practical part of it, where we look at our lives and we go, my life is so much better as I follow Jesus. Like, I have so much more than I ever would deserve. And as I look at just the existential questions of life, there's a consistent and coherent answer over here. Like this worldview makes sense of the world that we live in. Not only do we believe it's true, but we believe it's going to be worth it one day. In fact, I think it's worth it today. But even no matter what we encounter, we believe that this faith is worth it. Whatever sacrifices we have to make are going to be worth it. So if you're a parent, you know this to be true. On paper, being a parent makes no sense. It costs all your time and money and energy. It's just this giant sucking noise constantly. And what do you get in return? Maybe they'll leave. That's it. Maybe they'll leave one day. That's your reward at the end of it. Makes no sense. And yet, if you are a parent, you would say, I would do anything for these kids. I would give up anything because in those moments when you're cuddling on the couch and watching TV or they give you a hug or they say something that's not cynical and you know, you just, oh, you just go, I would, this is it. This is what it's all about. One of my favorite philosophers, William Lane Craig said, one day, no matter what you may have encountered in this life, you will stand in front of Jesus and you will have said, I would have done that life a million times over for this moment right here because we believe it's worth it. Paul says, Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That no matter what we encounter, and by the way, day to day, my life is so much better than I deserve. But even if it weren't, I would still say it's worth it. Here's how the story ends. Verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So here's the first thing that they do when they're released from prison after they've been flogged is they go and they retire and they get a bigger bank account and they work on their golf swing. <laughs> Sorry, no one here would do that, but I would imagine that some of us might be tempted to. What is the first thing that they do? They get back to the mission. <laughs> they get back to what they're supposed to do. 
They get back to building the church. So here's the pattern is they're building the church. They hit barriers. God makes a, a way forward, a breakthrough, and then they get back to building the church again. And this is not just the pattern that we see in this story. This is the pattern for the last 2,000 years of church history is people have given their lives to build the church. And then there's been barriers all along the way. First 300 years, there's 10 systematic uh, uh, persecutions with, the, with 100 years of those it being illegal to be a Christian. And then, of course, of course, inside the church, you had seasons of corruption and scandal and heresy, and it was just a mess. And today, we still face a lot of those same barriers. We still have internal issues, and we still have persecution. There's more Christians being persecuted today than in any other time in human history. And every generation, there are people who stand up and go, there's no way the church is going to make it. Like, there's no way. It's on its last leg. It has to crumble. I mean, how can they survive this? There's no, and every generation it defies all odds and makes no sense, and it just keeps moving forward. And Jesus claimed it. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, uh, Here's what we're guaranteed. We are guaranteed that the church will not fail. That even if in one area of the world it seems to be dying off, it will just emerge in another area. But here's what we are not guaranteed. That our church will continue on. That the church in America will continue to push forward. Because we very much could become like Europe. You know what's happening in Europe in churches? They're bars now. There's no guarantee that we here at SCG, that we will continue to move forward. He just guaranteed that the church will, but not necessarily our church will. And I'll be honest, as I, um, as I hear about different churches in our area and around our nation, there are more churches closing than I've ever seen before, and, and, and most pastors have heard of in decades. And so there's no guarantee that we will continue on. We face some significant barriers. We, we face some cultural and personal, relational, ideological barriers. And I'll be honest, as a parent, I am terrified of what is coming for my kids. The faith that they're going to have to have, the, the faith that they're going to have to fight for, it, it's just a culture that the, the, the cultural shift, the current that is taking place is so powerful and it's so consistent. It's always changing and coming in different directions. I mean, think about this. Something that was seen as common sense 10 years ago is now seen as bigotry today. That's pretty quick. And so I'm, I'm pretty nervous about my kids and their future. And one of the things that I know that has to happen is they have to have a strong church to be a part of. My kids, your kids, your grandkids, they have to be in a community that stands firm as culture begins to change. They need a safe place where they can come and they can learn and they can grow because there's going to be a battle that is ahead for them. I think that um, as I look at what's happened over the decades, the enemy has done something um, pretty clever is before the way that he was able to suppress Christianity and Christians from sharing their faith and moving forward was through violence and through war and through intimidation. You know what happened here? All he had to do was give us safety and comfort, and then we're neutralized. I'm good. My life is good. I don't want to disrupt. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to have to deal with any of that kind of stuff. And so what, what he did was he gave us safety and comfort, and then we just went, okay, I'm good. I'm going to ride off from here until eternity and I'm not going to change anybody's lives. I, I literally have had conversations with people who said, I've been a Christian my entire life, and I've never shared my faith. And I think, how is that possible? Like, how is the most, 
you claim the most important thing in your life and you've never told anybody about it? The disciples couldn't go a day without telling people about it. So here's what I think it's going to take to continue to build uh, this church in the future. Two things. It's going to take Christians who are all in. It's going to be important not only for you, because I said as, as culture continues to, to move and to um, gobble people up, if you're not 100% in, you're going to get wiped out. Now, I'm not saying God's going to pull Ananias and Sapphira and like, you're done. But like what I am saying is that your own desires and your own wants, those are going to wipe you out. And it's going to cost you something. Being a Christian is going to cost you something. It costs you time, costs you money, costs you energy, costs you your reputation, but it's going to cost you something in the future. Here's the other thing is I think it's going to take a breakthrough. The apostles, they were stuck in jail. There was nothing that they could do. They were, this is it. What am I supposed to do? Unless God shows up, I can't do anything. I can't fix this. I can't make this better. I can't force the issue. God just simply has to show up and has to do something. And I think that's the place where we have to get to as well, is we have to realize there is nothing that we can do to fix us or to fix the world around us. Yeah, there's pieces of the puzzle that we are supposed to put in place. We're supposed to share and we're supposed to go out there. But at the end of the day, we can't convince people to follow Jesus because that takes a miracle. It means you're going from spiritually dead to alive. I don't know how to do that. And either do you. And so although we've got to play our part, we do have to have God show up and do something that we can't do. We need a spiritual breakthrough. Maybe it's you individually where you need a breakthrough because you're apathetic or because you are afraid, you're indifferent, you feel inadequate to go out and share your faith. Or or maybe it's a breakthrough in somebody that you know. It's It's this hardened heart that you've been working for so long just trying to get this person to understand this faith. And it just is like hitting just a wall. You need a breakthrough. First thing they do is they get back to building. And I think the reason why God offered them such an incredible breakthrough is because they were ready to get back to the mission. And so for us, I don't think we can expect a breakthrough in our lives and in the lives around us unless we're willing to get back to the mission. Because God's going, well, why, why, would I, why would I offer you a breakthrough if you're just going to continue to serve you? No, no, no. We got to get out there and we've got to do something. And so here's what I want to do is I want to call the band up and I don't know where they're at. I think I was already supposed to call them out, but I got real fired up for a second there and kind of sweating a little bit now, and I need like a rag or something like that, and oh, it's a mess. Anyway, um, and so here's what I want to do, is I know that we're, we're kind of right here on the edge of running out of time, but <laughs> all the things I've said today, that's the least of my worries, um, and I've asked them to do a song, and in this song, uh, it asks God to show up and to provide a way through, a breakthrough, to give us some next steps. And whether that's a breakthrough in your own life and you need your heart to be softened or you need to have some kind of courage or whatever it is, the breakthrough that you need to experience or a breakthrough in the relationships around you. I want to end with this. I'm going to ask you not to leave. And I want to just use this as a time where we can worship, we can pray for a breakthrough that God would do something significant. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. You can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.